Thank you, Nick. And thank you to Catherine as well for sharing some about your family's uh, personal celebration of, of Darwin Day. Because Charles Darwin was born 213 years ago yesterday, on February 12, 1809. In recent years, his birthday has been increasingly celebrated as International Darwin Day this annual opportunity to celebrate and reflect on the guiding principles of Darwin's life, perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and hunger for truth. These values resonate with our UU fourth principle of a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, as well as our fifth source of reason and science. Darwin's theories of natural selection and of common descent were among the greatest intellectual achievements of the 19th century. So it is somewhat tragic that even now, well into the 21st century, the creation versus evolution debate continues, at least in some quarters. One reason it's significant to celebrate Darwin Day in a Unitarian Universalist congregation is that both sides of Darwin's family were in large part Unitarian. And while it's true that Darwin had other influences, he was baptized into the Anglican Church, he attended an Anglican boarding school, and was married by an Anglican priest, it's also the case that growing up, Charles and his siblings attended the Unitarian Chapel with their mother. And the liturgy used in his wedding to Emma Wedgwood was, quote, adapted to suit the Unitarians. We UUs are good at adapting things to, to suit us. And some of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were among the earliest religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting implications of Darwin's discoveries, such that we humans are not a little lower than the angels. We are a little higher than the apes, with whom we share a common ancestor. Indeed, in the wake of the Human Genome Project, we know that at the DNA level, there is only a 1.23% difference between we human beings and chimpanzees, 1.23. We humans are not uniquely special creations. We are only one among many evolved species, deeply interconnected with the other life forms and ecosystems of this planet. As our UU seventh principle affirms, we are part of and called to respect the interdependent web of all existence. Denying our place within the animal kingdom and the larger natural world has contributed to humans exploiting this planet and other life forms on it. But as the activist for climate justice, Wendell Berry, has put it, whether we and our politicians know it or not, nature is a party to all of our deals and decisions. Nature has more votes, a longer memory, and a sterner sense of justice than we do. Darwin Day is an annual reminder and an invitation to recalibrate how we humans think about ourselves and adjust to a more scientific, ecological, and evolutionary point of view. As part of my own preparation for Darwin Day, I've been reading a book titled The Story of Evolution in 25 Discoveries, The Evidence and the People Who Found It. It's by a prominent a geologist and paleontologist named Donald Prothero. The Story of Evolution in 25 Discoveries is one of a number of similar books. It's, it's kind of Prothero's shtick. 
you know, 25 this and 25 that. He's also, uh, and they're all by Columbia University Press. They're, they're quite well done and also pretty accessible. He's done the story of Earth in 25 rocks, the story of life in 25 fossils, the story of the dinosaurs in 25 discoveries. So those are all various accessible starting points if any of this leaves you curious to learn more. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to try to whip us through 25 discoveries in 20 minutes. Uh, moving at the rate of 48 seconds per major evolutionary discovery, I do not think would serve us well this morning. Instead, I want to give us just a few handholds for shifting ourselves even more fully to an evolutionary worldview. Consider, in contrast, a common medieval worldview. Not everyone, but many people in medieval times thought that the earth was flat, that the earth was at the center of the universe, and that the sun, moon, and stars were fixed in this rotating dome, right? We had this dome over us, and that it kind of rotated, and the sun and the stars were just, like, set in it. Then, less than 500 years ago, in 1543, this dude named Copernicus published a fateful book on the revolutions of the celestial spheres, which marshaled scientific evidence that the earth is not the center of the universe. We're the third rock from the sun, right? Decentering the earth in the grand scheme of things, proving that our planet is not at the center of life, the universe, and everything, that it's not all about us, that was a tremendous blow to many traditional religious beliefs. This discovery helped launch the scientific revolution, and it's worth pausing to consider that it's still less than 500 years since most humans started to recalibrate themselves toward a scientific worldview. The 500th anniversary of the Copernican Revolution, that's still two decades ahead of us in 2043. Some of you may recall a few years ago when the evolutionary evangelist Michael Dowd preached here at UUCF. So you may remember Michael Dowd being here? All right, I see a few hands. He challenged us to consider the problem with most religious beliefs is not that they are B.C. in terms of being before Christ. He said the problem with most religious beliefs is that they are B.C. before Copernicus. Our invitation and our challenge is to co-construct a religion and a spirituality that makes sense in light of all that we know here in the early 21st century, both in light of peer-reviewed science and in light of what happens in our own direct first-hand experience, which can sometimes be weird and spooky and uncanny and not replicable in laboratory conditions. Holding on to both those things, peer-reviewed science and the things that we know for sure because they happened to us. It used to be more reasonable to make the case that the universe is only a few thousand years old and that everything is mostly unchanged since then. But after these paradigm-shifting discoveries of Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Darwin, Einstein, Hubble, and so many others, we have become conscious that we are part of a profoundly bigger universe story. Here's how the cosmologist Carl Sagan put it in his classic book, Cosmos, one of those books that's still worth going back and rereading. He said, as long as there have been humans, we have searched for our place in the cosmos, as, as Kylie sang earlier. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star, 
lost between two spiral arms in the outskirts of a galaxy, right? We're in this spiral Milky Way galaxy, right? We're not just the third rock from the sun. We're on the outskirts of the Milky Way galaxy. Tucked away, Sagan wrote, in some forgotten corner of a universe in which, he concludes, there are far more galaxies than people. There are far more galaxies than people, even though since the Industrial Revolution, the last 200 years, we've been on the skyrocket, right? As far as like going from like 1 billion people to like close to 8 billion humans. There are 2 trillion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies. Sagan used to say billions and billions. It's worse than that, we now know. It's trillions. Relatedly, how many of you have been following the recent launch of the James Webb Space Telescope? Anybody? You can um, comment in the chat uh, as well if you've been following that. It's, I've, I've tried not to follow it too closely. It makes me anxious. I'm like, I really hope it works. And the good news is it seems to be, right? Uh, it's approximately 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope, its predecessor, and able to collect light from an area five times larger than the Hubble. And once it's fully calibrated, scientists should begin receiving images as early as this summer. These new images into deeper space and deeper time than we have previously had access to remind us that our understanding of the evolutionary nature of the universe is continuing to evolve, as is the universe itself. To orient us further to this evolutionary, cosmic worldview, you know, that our invitation as human beings, we're all born little narcissists, right? We're born these little uh, egocentric beings. Feed me, clean, change my diaper, right? All this stuff. And then we kind of evolve to an ethnocentric worldview, to our tribe. And then hopefully many of us expand to a globocentric worldview. But then we're really challenged to have a more cosmic evolutionary worldview. And since this is Super Bowl Sunday, I'm going to give you two, two analogies. But since this is Super Bowl Sunday, I'll give you a rare sports analogy from me. Imagine we are standing at one goal line of a football field. So we're on one, one goal line. And the 100 yards stretching out in front of us, imagine that represents the 4.6 billion year old universe story. That means that each yard stands for 50 million years. At kickoff, the punt returner would need to make it 88 yards. That's pretty far right, would need to make it 88 yards, sprinting right through the entire Precambrian period to reach the 12-yard line when the first multicellular animals, such as trilobites, appeared. So just like so much time passed before anything super interesting happened, right? We're already 88 yards to the goal. The dinosaurs don't show up until the five-yard line, five yards from a touchdown. And the age of the dinosaurs extends all the way until 1.5 yards from a goal. It's breathtaking to consider that we're already 98.5% of the way to a touchdown, and we're only at the extinction of the dinosaurs. The earliest ancestors of our human lineage arrive 8.3 inches from the goal line. So, like, <laughs> that much? And the distance grows even narrower as we humans finally show up on the scene. The ice ages begin 3.6 inches from the goal line. The first members of our own species, Homo sapiens, appear three-tenths of an inch, 0 0.3 inches uh, before the goal line. I don't envy any referee making a call that's about 0 0.3 inches from the... Like, you better like get in a car and run afterwards if it's that close. 
All of the last, all of the last 5,000 years of human civilization is eight hundredths of an inch, 0.08 inches, narrower than a blade of grass. If the chalk stripe that marks the goal line is just a tiny bit too wide, it wipes out all of human history. Don't mess that up, chalk drawers. Whatever is going on, wherever we come from, whatever we are, wherever we're going, we are not the center of life, the universe, and everything. This universe, this multiverse, perhaps, is about a lot more than us humans, as fascinating and as extraordinary as we can be. Since we also recently began a new year, I'll give you just one more example and plot a few different points out. This time, imagine we're squeezing the entire history of the universe into a single calendar year. Using this analogy, the first simple prokaryotic bacteria would not be scheduled to appear until a week or so from now, on February 21st. Then another eight months would pass before the first multicellular animals appeared on October 25th. A month later, November 28th, is when those first amphibians would start crawling out of the sea onto dry land. December 7th, we're already in December, we're almost at the end of the year, and Earth is still Pangaea. It's still that single supercontinent before the continents broke apart with plate tectonics, which we also didn't know about till like 1970s, right? We didn't really start ex widely accepting plate tectonics until then. The dinosaurs are wiped out on Christmas Day. The entire past 66 million years of the age of mammals, that can be squeezed into just the final week between Christmas Day and New Year's. The earliest human relatives do not appear until seven hours before midnight on New Year's Eve. And the earliest members of our genus, Homo, are found only one hour, one hour before midnight. All of human civilization flashes by in the last minute of the countdown to New Year's, to midnight. As with drawing that chalk on the football field too wide, if you start celebrating a few seconds too early, all of human history is wiped out. So just as we pause to appreciate that we humans have only known for less than 500 years that our Earth is not the center of the universe, it is important to pause and reflect that we humans have only known for slightly more than 200 years, slightly more than two centuries, that our universe is not a few thousand years old, but instead 13.7 billion years old. Here's one related quote from Carl Sagan, this time from the television show Cosmos. He said, the size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. We have to use analogies like the football field and the uh, calendar to even begin to grok, <laughs> like how big of scale we're talking about. Lost somewhere, he said, between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home, that, that little blue dot in that inky black space. In a cosmic perspective, most human concerns seem insignificant even petty. And yet our species is young and curious and brave, and we show much promise. In the last few millennia, we have made the most astonishing and unexpected discoveries about the cosmos and our place within it. You know, 500 years ago, 200 years ago, these discoveries that continue. They remind us that humans have evolved to wonder that understanding, understanding is a joy, and that knowledge is pre a prerequisite to survival. Uh, Sagan wrote, I believe that our future depends on how well we know this cosmos in which we float like a moat of dust in the morning sky. 
In that spirit, as I begin to move toward my conclusion, I want to bring in just a few more important insights about cultivating this sort of cosmic evolutionary perspective. And to do so, I want to share just a few highlights from one other recent book. It's titled, How to Be an Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. It's by a, a naturalist writer named uh, Melanie Challenger. Her opening sentence states the problem clearly. She writes, the world is now dominated by an animal that doesn't think it's an animal. <laughs> the problem is us, right? Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that um, New Yorker cartoon that has Saturn, you know, the ring around Saturn has like a little doctor's mirror thing on it and it's diagnosing Earth and it says, I'm sorry, you have humans. <laughs> The world is now dominated by an animal that doesn't think it's an animal. And as any psycho psychologist will tell you, when you repress, it's, repress essential truths about yourself, you don't just get rid of them. They just come up in these weird, perverted, twisted ways that then you eventually have to go to therapy to deal with, right? <laughs> to get in right relationship with them again. Denying that we are humans, that we are part of the animal kingdom, has allowed for too many members of our species to pretend like we can treat every other life form as well as the planet itself with impunity. The result is climate crisis, mass extinction, general ecological devastation. Our invitation at this late date is to fully accept that we humans are not uniquely special creations, but deeply part of the ecological, evolutionary, interdependent web of life. I mean, to me, that's actually good news. Instead, you know, it's a deeply connecting, profound kinship can come out of this. Einstein said it this way about what it can mean for humans to break out of our immaturity of individualism, narcissism, and tribalism, and realize the deeper truth of our situation from this interdependent, ecological, evolutionary, cosmic perspective. Einstein said, a human being is part of the whole, called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. A human experiences themselves, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest. But Einstein said, that's a kind of optical delusion of the consciousness. We're actually deeply connected. He said, this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task, he concluded, must be to free ourselves from this prison, from this delusion of our ego separateness. We must widen our circle of compassion. How beautifully resonant with our UU goal of widening our circle of concern. Einstein said, we have to widen our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. I mean, we sometimes talk about ourselves like a little higher than the apes, but we, we shouldn't get too arrogant. Think about COVID. We're all here wearing masks. This little microscopic thing is rocking our world, right? You know, it may be lower than us on the evolutionary chain, but it's powerful. It matters. We're interdependent. We'll talk more next week with this Afro-Indigenous um, history of the United States about the need for what might be called or what is being called not just a Green New Deal, but a Black, Red, and Green New Deal that takes into concern, you know, Black History Month, Indigenous perspectives, a Black, Green, and Red New Deal. We'll talk some more about that next week. For now, I'll conclude with the final paragraph of Darwin's 1859 book on the origin of species. Whereas many scientific books, I think this is fair to say, are 
not the best written. Uh, they are often densely written, jargon-filled, become obsolete when new discoveries are made, with some notable exceptions. Darwin's books among them, they remain widely praised classics, both for the beauty of their prose and because they're so well grounded in their close observations of the natural world. Much of Darwin's science has not become obsolete for that reason, even a century and a half later. So I invite you to consider anew these final words from the conclusion of Origin. Note that Darwin begins the following paragraph by naming aspects of life that we often perceive as solely negative. That's part of why he was such a genius. He really flips the, the worldview on us. Uh, he then highlights how essential those difficult parts of reality, what Tennyson, do you know the Tennyson poem, Nature Red and Tooth and Cloth? Like, you know, evolution often happens through, through violence. Darwin takes those difficult parts of reality and shows how they are part of the natural engine of evolution. In Darwin's words, from the war of nature, nature fight, you know, when animals attack, right? <laughs> We've all seen that. Uh, from the war of nature, from famine, from death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, the production of higher animals, directly follows. From these terrible things, the production of higher animals directly follows. He then adds the most famous line, there is a grandeur in this view of life. He's really inviting us to get that. There is a grandeur in this evolutionary view of life. And he said, whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, these tiny life forms, endless forms, most beautiful, most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. So as we continue to navigate our way through the promises and the perils of embracing the both, the best of both science and spirituality, of reason and religion in the 21st century, let's hear together a hymn written out of this very struggle, A Fire Mist and a Planet. <laughs> 